Hello everyone. I want to talk about why was William Tyndale executed? Uh, October 14, 2022 by Kevin Grubbs. CZACHeritage.org Tyndale continued to work on the Old Testament translation but was captured in Antwerp before it was completed. Heresy charges were later brought against him and he was condemned for heresy and executed by strangulation and burned at the stake at Villefort in 1536. His legacy lives on through his translations of the Bible into English which are still used today. Why was William Tyndale executed? Tyndale continued working on the Old Testament translation, but was captured and executed before it was completed. He was condemned for heresy and burned at the stake at Villefort in 1536. His lost work, known as the New Testament translation of the Holy Book into English from the original tongues NTTP, is still, revert, is still revered by some Christians today. Tyndale's legacy inspires modern-day translators who continue to bring as 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 Christians would call it, God's word to people around the world. Tyndale continued to work on the Old Testament translation, but was captured in Antwerp before it was completed. William Tyndale was executed in 1536 for translating the Bible into English from the original Hebrew and Greek texts. He continued to work on the Old Testament translation even after he was captured, but it wasn't completed until 1611. His efforts helped spread Christianity throughout Europe and played a major role in shaping Western civilization. The King of England had Tyndale beheaded because he believed that the Bible should only be read by those who are educated enough to understand it properly. There are now several memorials dedicated to him around the world, including one at Westminster Abbey in London where his body is buried. Condemned for heresy, he was executed by strangulation, then burned to stake in Villefort in 1536. Um, his convictions stem from his translations of the Bible into English, which were seen as a threat to church authority. He is now considered one of the most important figures in Protestantism, and his works continue to be studied today. The martyrdom of William Tyndale has sparked debate over freedom of speech and religion centuries after he was killed. Thanks to modern technology, his story continues to be remembered through various memorials and exhibitions around the world. To recap, William Tyndale was executed because he translated the Bible into English, which Catholics considered to be a heretical text. His execution helped to submit Protestantism as the official religion of, of England. Um, how does all this make me feel? I think what happened to William Tyndale was deplorable, deserving strong condemnation, disgraceful, shameful, dishonorable, disreputable, discredible, unworthy, shabby, inexcusable, unpardonable, unforgivable, reprehensible, despicable, abominable, base, sordid, vile, hateful, contemptible, loathsome, offensive, execrable, heinous, odious, revolting, unspeakable, beyond contempt, beyond the pale, egregious, flagitious, um, not admirable, um, Shockingly bad in quality, lamentable, regrettable, grievous, unfortunate, wretched, dire, atrocious, abysmal, very bad, awful, terrible, dreadful, diabolical, miserable, pitiable, pathetic, sorry, unhappy, sad, woeful, substandard, sub 
poor, inadequate, inferior, unsatisfactory, unacceptable, appalling, rotten, crummy, lousy, god awful, chronic, and frightful, not excellent. And this is a, and these are, and what happened to Tind, William Tyndale is another reason why I'm a secular person. Hello, so there's more for me to talk about. This is by Mark Oliver, fact check by Jamie Frater. This is July 29, 2018, listverse.com. 10 Bible verses that were changed in translation. The word of the Holy Bible isn't always as clear cut as we'd like it to be. It didn't fall from the sky bound in leather with every word in perfect English. Instead, it's something countless scribes have spent thousands of years deciphering, working off age-old manuscripts that don't always say the same things. They don't always get it right. Some of the best-known verses in the Bible have been mixed up, rewritten by translators, or even just snuck into the good book in quotations, as Christians call it, from scratch, pulled from nothing more than a scribe's imagination. And that could be a big deal. If you, if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, Christians believe that. Every little detail matter. matters. The slightest typo could completely change the way millions of people, even billions of people, lead their lives. I, um... I dare say that the Bible has been corrupted, the Bible has been altered, the Bible has been edited, the Bible has been revised, and the Bible has been tampered with. The Bible has inconsistencies and discrepancies in it as well. And I can honestly say that there are flawed parts of the Bible, unsound parts of the Bible, defective parts of the Bible, faulty parts of the Bible, distorted parts of the Bible, inaccurate parts of the Bible, incorrect parts of the Bible, erroneous parts of the Bible, imprecise parts of the Bible, fallacious parts of the Bible, wrong parts of the Bible, impaired parts of the Bible, weak parts of the Bible, invalid parts of the Bible, blemished parts of the Bible, damaged parts of the Bible, imperfect parts of the Bible, and having weakness in character parts of the Bible too. They're flawed parts of the Bible. And the Bible has been manipulated And the Bible has been redacted. And lastly, the Bible has been reworked and inserted in terms of words into the canon that weren't a part of any of the original manuscripts. The, re- the original manuscripts. were never safeguarded. 
and the original manuscripts can't even be found. It says, number 10, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. One of the best known stories in the Bible may have been completely made up by a translator. It's a famous story of Jesus drawing a line in the sand between a woman and the Pharisees who wanted to stone her to death. In most Bibles, it shows up between John chapter 7 verse 53 and John chapter 8 verse 11. And it gives us one of the most quoted lines in Christianity. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. How it's exactly written varies between different versions. The thing is, the oldest copies of the Gospel of John don't have that story. In fact, that story doesn't show up anywhere or, in, or on anything until the 5th century AD, about 400 years after Jesus died. The first text to include this story is an old Greek and Latin translation of the Gospels called the Codex Bizet. That codex is notorious for slipping in the odd extra detail that doesn't show up anywhere else. And this story in particular is worded in a way that some biblical scholars say doesn't quite sound like it was written by the same person who wrote the rest of the book of John. That proves to me that the Bible has not been remarkably well perversed, well preserved over the centuries again. That proves to me that the Bible has not been remarkably well-preserved over the centuries. The Bible has been changed many times. And I would say that when it comes to the Bible, I at times I feel suspicious. At times I'm having or showing a cautious distrust of the Bible to some extent. When it comes to the Bible, I have the I am having the belief or impression that Maybe the unknown authorship could have been written by some of them who may have been involved in illegal or dishonest activity. And when it comes, and to me, the Bible is questionable. Um, there, are, to some parts of the Bible, there are dangerous conditions. To some parts of the Bible. You know, it's its own dangerous character. And some parts of the Bible are just clearly dishonest. A lot of people still argue it's a true story, most on the basis that it sounds like the type of thing Jesus would do. There's a lot of reason to believe, though, that the famous quote isn't really the word of Jesus. It's just something somebody slipped in for centuries later. I've always felt that way because I think that in a patriarchal world, it's not adultery, it's rape. Number nine, women should remain silent in churches. Ugh. First Corinthians chapter 14 contains a strange, seemingly random interjection of misogyny 
that interrupts what without thought would be a cohesive thought. That they usually show up as verses 34 and 35 and they read, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. When you read it in context, it doesn't make a ton of sense. The same chapter of the Bible calls on both brothers and sisters to prophesy and speak in tongues. And it seems to heavily heavily imply that they're supposed to be doing these things, none of which involve remaining silent while they're in church. Um, Let's see. Mary Magdalene told everybody about the resurrected Jesus. And she's rumored to be Jesus' wife. And he had female disciples who financially supported him and took care of him and his disciples was every basic human need. Wow. There, there might be a simple explanation, though. Some people think an early Christian scholar just got fed up with his wife and slipped a stop asking me questions versus the good book that the Christians call it. Um, there are books of the Bible that are bad books. The Bible can be a bad book in reference to human rights abuses. And I think that's what happened. A Christian scholar said, you know what? I'm going to make my misogyny funny. So women could be in that type of pain. It's There's no nobility to that. A 4th century manuscript of the book of Corinthians has a little note penciled into the margins next to those verses saying they are at a later edition that, were, that weren't originally in the book. In the other early manuscripts, these verses show up in seemingly random different parts of the Bible. It's possible, though, that this line is legitimate, that modern readers are just trying to erase it. Because the other side of the manuscript is that, despite what that one note says, we can't find a single manuscript that doesn't contain these lines. And so for now, most Bibles still leave it in. When it comes to the original manuscript of the Bible, I feel doubtful, unsure, skeptical, and distrustful. I feel cherry. And wary. And I feel wary about it. Um And plus, there's nothing wrong with female empowerment. The ancient people are too stupid to understand that that's not a sin at all. Number eight, the Lord's Prayer. One day, Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus replied, when you pray, say this. And then he said something. We're not completely sure what. The Lord's Prayer, somewhat ironically, is actually one of the parts of the Bible that's seen the most changes through translation. There are a lot of lines in it that we aren't 100% sure of are the same as when they were first written down. The line, Thy kingdom come in some early versions of the Bible read, 
May your Holy Spirit come upon us and purify us, opening up the possibility that the line was rewritten by someone with an apocalypse obsession. Even Pope Francis has complained about this one. He objects to the line, lead us not into temptation, arguing that it should be translated, do not let us fall into temptation. It's just a few words, but it's a big difference. The usual translation... Kind of makes God sound like a trickster out to ruin everybody's lives. But isn't that what Jacob, who became Israel, was basically a trickster? So the Bible writer saying that Jacob got his deceptiveness from God. Mm, mm, mm. And the whole last line often called the doxology was almost certainly added by a translator. The line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, doesn't appear in the earliest in, man, er, the earliest in manuscripts, leading a lot of biblical scholars to think someone somewhere along the line slipped it in himself. I feel like you're hanging out with your friend and you're at home. Either you do the sleepover or you don't. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Either way, your friend is healthily loud about you and your greatness. Instead of, I'm going to divinely insult the intelligence that I gave you. Mm. And... I do know that I'm the type of person that questions because I care. And when you slip in something yourself, that means that everything the Bible calls sins may not be truly sins because you got people who wrote statements and we don't know who they are. It says, number seven, the strength of the unicorn. There's this weird part of the Bible where Moses suddenly starts talking about unicorns as if they're just gallivant- gallivanting all over the place. It's Numbers chapter 23, verse 22, and it reads, God brought them out of Egypt. He has, he hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. It's one of the main reasons the idea of unicorn is still so popular today. After all, they're in the Bible. When everybody agrees that the original Hebrew word rim means unicorn, Rim means single horned creature, but it's more of a genus than a species. It's a broad word that could refer to just about any horned creature, including rhinoceroses, wild oxen, wild buffalo, and eurixuses. The King James Version of the Bible still says unicorn, but those other animals have shown up in other translations today. Most Bibles just call it a wild ox. But now, though, the unicorn has been firmly made a part of our mythological fantasies, and all because of a poor choice in translation. This makes me feel mistrustful, disbelieving, and apprehensive. Number six, a sodomite of the sons of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17 to 18 seems to be an outright condemnation of homosexuality, reads, 
There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor sodomite of the sons of Israel. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. For even both these are abominations to the Lord thy God. This is what I will say. I am pro-sex workers' rights and pro-sex work. I am pro-LGBTQIA plus rights. You already know I enjoy being a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. And I've also learned that it could be misogynistic. Price of a dog, that word, we already know what it is. Plus, um, it says, um, into the house of the Lord, thy God, for any vow, for even both these are abominations unto the Lord, thy God. I just want to say that I am, um, like I said, I'm pro-sex work. Um, I'm pro-transgender rights. I'm, I am against the discrimination against non-binary people. It says it seems pretty pretty clear cut if it's translated correctly anyway, but a lot of people think that it isn't. The word sodomite here doesn't really seem to fit the context, and there's a reason for that. The original word has a meaning that's actually closer to male prostitute and doesn't really have any connection to homosexuality. First of all, I just want to say I support the ethical version of male prostitution. I support the ethical version of female prostitution. I support the ethical version of non-binary prostitution. I support the ethical version of transgender prostitution. Um, I am pro-homosexuality. I am pro-transgenderism. And I am pro-non-binariness. Okay. In the original Hebrew, the whole verse seems much more likely to be a condemnation of prostitution with either gender instead of specifically being an attack on male homosexuals. By the way, I'm pro lesbianism, pro-intersex, pro-bisexuality, pro-queer, pro-questioning, pro-curious, pro-asexuality. And pro-gay. It says someone translating the King James Version decided to throw the word quote-unquote sodomite in. So I am for the legalization and criminalization of prostitution and sex work. And I am pro-porn. I am a pro-ethical porn. How does that all make me feel? It makes me feel cynical, John Diced. It makes me feel cynical, Juan Diced, and having tough reservations. Mm. And these three are one. Number five. When someone denies that Jesus and God are the same being, the easiest verse to prove them wrong is First John chapter five or seven eight in the King James Version it reads, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. 
And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. It's a clear, unambiguous declaration that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one and the same, except the thing is, it isn't actually a part of the Bible. In the oldest manuscripts, the verses are a lot shorter. They just say there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree without any refer without any references to the Trinity. All those extra lines don't show up until the 4th century, which coincidentally happens to be when the Catholic Church officially approved what's known as the Trinity Doctrine, the idea that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one. Most biblical scholars think this line was reworked in by some 4th century priests who wanted to make sure nobody could prove his quote-unquote Trinity wrong and stay in the Bible for more than 1,000 years. Mm. All that makes me feel like Christian history has disreputable, unsavory, slippery slope and slippery and suspect and questionable parts to it. Certain parts of Christian history are odd, strange, irregular, under suspicion, mysterious, murky, um, guilty looking, strange looking, dishonest looking, not quite right. And under intense suspicion when it comes to me. It says, um, number four, the fool who says there's no God. Psalm chapter 14 is a song about atheism. It talks about the quote-unquote fool who says there's no God and criticizes them as selfish, corrupt people who focus on their own narcissistic interests while leaving the poor to starve. Here's what I want to say. Fools are clearly not people who say there's no God. But I will tell you this. Atheists are humble, grateful kind and compassionate people who focus on their who focus on the interest of social justice while feeding and clothing and hydrating the poor most atheists think that way and it says depending on the copy of the bible you have though it can go a lot further than that in some of the earlier English translations of the Bible, the song gets really harsh. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and happiness is in their ways and the way of peace have they not known. In my view, none of that has to do anything with atheists. It's a pretty big leap to go from you evildoers frustrated to plans of the poor, which just says atheists are kind of insensitive to their feet are swift to shed blood. Some early biblical translator, though, apparently thought the song wasn't harsh enough, so he slipped into some accusations that atheists go around straight-up murdering people. None of this is in the original manuscripts. The original psalm was just a call to take care of the less fortunate. The Bible doesn't really say atheists are secretly plotting death, plotting death, and obviously they don't at all whatsoever. And um, all of this is scandalous and 
not to, and not considered to be respectable in a char- in character or appearance. Then it says um Number 3 prayer and fasting. After Jesus cast the demons out of an epileptic man, his disciples asked him how he done it, and Jesus told them in Mark chapter 9 verse 29 and Matthew chapter 17 verse 21, this kind does not come out except by praying and fasting or maybe just prayer. We're not completely sure. The thing is that we don't actually have a copy of whatever it is the Apostle Mark actually wrote. All we have are copies that other people made a hundred years or so later. Some of them say prayer and fasting, while others just say prayer. The oldest one we can find only says prayer. So some people think that the word fasting was added by a scribe, but we can't really know for sure. It's perfectly possible that the person who wrote the oldest one just accidentally left a word out and the other scribes got it right. It's just one word, but it's a big difference. It might be that Jesus commanded all of his followers to show their faith through fasting, where a lot of people might be trying to fast demons away for no reason, all because of translation error. All of this is unscrupulous and unprincipled to me. Um... Number two, a firstborn son. Matthew chapter 1 verse 25 declares that Jesus marries firstborn son. In some translations of the Bible anyway, in others, it just calls him the son. And if you're Catholic, that one word makes a big difference. A lot of Catholics subscribe to the idea that Mary remained a virgin throughout her entire life even after she gave birth to Jesus. That's probably why a lot of Catholic Bibles translate that line to a son because they rejected it that Jesus had siblings. Um... It's a tricky position to defend since there are a couple of parts in the Bible where Jesus actually meets up with siblings and talks to them. But some Catholics argue that those stories are translation errors too. The original Greek manuscript used the word Adelphos to refer to Jesus' siblings, which can mean cousins instead of brother. Pretty well, all of the oldest manuscripts of the book of Matthew, though, clearly use the words firstborn son instead of a son. A lot of people believe the word firstborn was deliberately taken out by people who wanted to think of Mary as a lifelong virgin didn't really change in the Bible so that it fit what they wanted to say. Um, if you have believers fighting over which ones are translation errors or not, that lets me know that Jesus never created Christianity. That's something that the ancient humans did, though. And all of that is just makes me feel untrustworthy with them. And it makes me feel just credible and contemptible at the same time. The rascality makes no sense to me. It is Lausch and it is it's just it's just like all this is disordered and disheveled, you know, in terms of all these translation issues in church. Jesus could have had brothers, could have had cousins, hey. And Mary had sex before. The rest of her sim- of Jesus' siblings is because she ha- she kept having sex, most notably with Joseph. So that was number two. And let's wrap up with this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, number one. In 2016, a group of scholars put together what they call the Permanent English Standard Version of the Bible. 
This they advertised was the unchanging word of God, with every word translated so flawlessly that nothing would ever need to be changed. Now that is what evangelicals are saying. I'm not saying um that I would go by their flawlessness and that I wouldn't go by their religiosity. Even though I was in the church world, I wasn't very big on outward religiosity displays. It says, um, readers barely had to turn the first page, though, before they noticed a huge error. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, when God curses Eve, usually reads, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, he shall rule over thee. But the new ESV translation, it reads, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's a little different from the original, like for one, it says the exact opposite thing. The ESV translation suggests that God cursed women to be in horrible marriages for all of eternity, constantly having their every desire squashed by a husband who doesn't share a single one of their interests. The translators stand by their decision despite widespread disapproval. Which is just showing that they're in need of a psychiatric institution. And it makes a difference. Their translation tells women around the world that they shouldn't, ex- shouldn't expect ever to be in happy marriages. And that they should settle for men who squash their every dream. I say fuck that shit. Hell no. And by binding their own words up with the label, the Holy Bible, translators are telling women that this is the word of God. And all of this honestly makes me feel that this is wrong, incorrect, mistaken, and error, erroneous, inaccurate, not accurate, inexact, not exact, imprecise, invalid, untrue, false, fallacious, wide of the mark. Off target, misleading, illogical, unsound, unfounded, without foundation, faulty, flawed, off beam, bogus, phony, out, way out, full of holes, dicey, iffy, dodging abroad, not right, not correct, and not spot on, not correct or true, incorrect, just all wrong. That's how I feel about the mistranslations. And, um, I think I'm going to definitely end with this. Jesus was not the founder of the Christian faith. Jesus did not found the Christian religion. It brought back to life. He will continue to worship as a Jew. It was others who carried on afterwards and who preferred his ministry that formed the umbrella of Christian religions that exist today. Following is taken from Albert Schweitzer, a quest for the historical Jesus. There's nothing more negative than the result of the critical study of the life of Jesus. The Jesus of Nazareth who came for a public as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth, and died to give his work final consecration, never had any existence. Well, most historians say that he was a full human being who was around 
as a flesh and blood fully human being within the first century. I do know one thing, the historical Jesus is not the mythical Jesus. And it says, it rarely occurs to anyone brought up as a Christian to question whether Jesus founded the Christian religion. It seems so obvious that he did, but what if we look for biblical evidence that Jesus was the first Christian and compare it to the evidence that he was more or less conventional father of the Jewish religion? It says, um... After almost a thousand years of Christian development of the story of Jesus, it is easy to forget that he was Jewish by descent. In fact, Jesus was quite clearly Jewish. He bore a common Jewish name. His real name is Yeshua. His real name also means Joshua. Animal sacrifices were made by his family to mark his birth in accordance with Jewish custom, purifying the mother and, quote, unquote, redeeming the son. He was circumcised according to Jewish law. He accepted the Jewish faith throughout his life. He attended the synagogue and was familiar with the Jewish scriptures. Indeed, he often taught in synagogues. Example, Mark chapter 1, verse 39, Mark, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Luke chapter 4, verse 15. On one occasion, he even delivered the liturgical sermon after reading the prophetic lesson for the day. As a Jewish teacher, his followers naturally addressed him as rabbi. Many of his teachings were characteristic teachings of the Pharisees, one of the many Jewish sects than popular. S-E-C-T-S. After healing a leper, Jesus instructed him to go to a Jewish priest and make an offering as required by Jewish law. On a number of occasions, he, indi- he indicated that he, was only in- he- that he was interested only in the Jewish people, supported as having said, wait, we're the Messiah is supposed to be interested in everybody. I am not sent unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. Furthermore, Jesus specifically forbade his disciples from teaching to the Gentiles, Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Which I, I, I reject that because it's like, if you're wise, then you'll always be socializing with these people sometimes. So, I, I think Gentiles are awesome. I don't mind learning growing from them. Then it says he characterized the Gentiles as dogs. Matthew chapter 15, verse 26, and Mark chapter 7, verse 27. I didn't like he said that because it's like, he basically called them bitch in a nice way. And as a swine, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, I'm like, eh. Now, is this playful or is this serious in terms of the making fun competition? Mm hmm. And it says, when a man from the Gentile city of Gerasa asked to be allowed to join Jesus' followers, his offers was declined. He was told to return home. Mark chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. Luke chapter 8, verse 38 through 39. Jesus' teachings was characteristically Jewish. The aspects that are often pointed up as being new and radically different were not at all new, as we shall see later. Hmm. You know, the Bible writer should have painted Jesus as embracing of the full humanity and the human rights of the Gentiles. It says, Jesus worshiped in the temple and in synagogues. He never expressed any intention that his followers should do otherwise. He never established a church in the sense that the word is not used. After his death, his immediate followers continued to worship at the temple and attend synagogues. Notice, 
Jesus was into synagogues and temples. He was never in a church in the first century. It says after Paul and his friends proved too troublesome to be a comp- to be a comp- to be accommodated in synagogues, followers worshipped at home. COVID did that to so many people. For generations afterwards, gentle Christians worshipped in private houses. It was not until later that buildings were specifically built as requested as churches. I'm like, wow. Discarding people just because they don't share your denominational theology? That's unchristlike. It says, Only after this had happened could it occur to anyone to re- reinterpret the statement and I say also into the that thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petros, I will build my church ecclesian. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. In the centuries to come, new meanings will be found for this statement, but for the time being, it could be used to justify separate church and separate church buildings. Wow. I just feel like I'm the type of person I refuse to be duped. I refuse to be deceived. I refuse to be tricked. I refuse to be hoodwinked. I refuse to be hoaxed. I refuse to be run amok. I refuse to be led astray. I refuse to be bamboozled. I refuse to be hoaxed. I refuse to be swindled. I refuse to be defrauded. I refuse to be cheated. I refuse to be double crossed. I refuse to be gulled. I refuse to be misled. I refuse to uh, take in, in in the bad type of way. I refuse to be fooled. I refuse to be played for a sucker. I refuse to be deluded. I refuse to be misguided. I refuse to be led on in all the wrong ways. I refuse to be inveigled. I refuse to be um, seduced by deception. I refuse to be ensnared. I refuse to be entrapped. I refuse to be beguiled. I refuse to be cozy. I refuse to be sharp. I refuse to be mulked. I refuse to be deceived, and I again, I refuse to be tricked. And it says, according to the Bible, Jesus never used to hurt the word Christian. Because Jesus is not a Christian. It was not even coined until around AD 42 years after his death when it was first used in Antioch, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Apart from anything else, it would not have made much sense for Jesus to found a religion because it's clear that he believed the end of the world to be imminent. According to the New Testament, he said so on numerous occasions. There would be little point in establishing a church in this accompanying hierarchy if the world was going to end with it within a few years at most. The simple fact is that there is no evidence that Jesus had intended to found a new religion. Christian or otherwise. This is damning evidence against Christianity that the central figure of the faith had no intention to formulate the religion upon which he is worshipped. That this would be like uncovering evidence that Martin Luther remained a devoted Catholic who was posthumously recharacterized by others as the founder of the Protestant revelation. Jesus never even created the Bible. Mm. How all this makes me feel. I'm feeling grouchy and grumpy right now because. 
For some people, they feel like, well, having fun means that I'm away from my legalistic parents who abuse each other. Mm. All these translations means that all of it should be unjust, dishonest, or immoral, illegal, against the law, unlawful, illicit, indictable, lawless, law-breaking, criminal, delinquent, felonious, dishonest, dishonorable, corrupt, unethical, immoral, morally wrong, bad, wicked, base, evil, sinful, foul, despicable, iniquitous, nefarious, blameworthy, condemnable, culpable, crooked, shady, bent, not crooked, um, not legal, and not ethical. And, um, what helps me to overcome those thoughts, I sometimes talk to women about how glad they are in their marriages and unmarried life partnerships. And they love the fact that I'm unjust. They love the fact that I am. I am never unjust. I'm never dishonest. And I'm never immoral. That's what they love about me. And when I um, do talk about. All these things that have happened to me. Um. Listening, you know, makes me feel like and I said I feel like the church has gained the whole universe. And they lost their inner beauty.